0: The conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. He's the only musician who doesn't make a sound. But he has great power. But his power comes from his ability to make other people powerful. That's the key.
1: Benjamin Zander could be described as a conductor in the broadest sense of the word. Through him, music and ideas flow, and possibilities open up. He spent half of his life conducting the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. And his recordings of the Mahler Symphonies with the Philharmonia have been showered with critical praise and received three Grammy nominations. He firmly believes that classical music is for everybody and takes great joy in sharing this belief. A TED Talk on that very subject has been watched more than 20 million times. Now aged 82, he's showing no signs of slowing down. During lockdown, he kept the fires of live performance burning with regular concerts on his driveway. But as well as a decades-long career on the podiums of some of the world's greatest concert halls, Ben's also a coach and a mentor for leaders across the globe, as well as inspiring people of all ages and from all walks of life. He's also the best-selling author of his book, The Art of Possibility, co-written with his wife, Rosamund. I'm Emma Nelson, and this is The Big Interview on Monocle 24, and I'm delighted to say that Ben and his piano join me from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ben, welcome to The Big Interview.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm going to start with a cheeky question. What was the last piece of music you listened to or played, and why?
0: Well, I'm deciding on what to do with my youth orchestra next season. We're going to Russia on tour and we're going to be giving concerts all over Russia. So the question is, should we bring Shostakovich Fifth, Which is a piece of immense power and depth and deeply moving. Or should we bring Scheherazade of Rimsky-Korsakov? Which is a brilliant showpiece full of color and virtuosity and charm and storytelling and so on. So, I've been listening to both those pieces and I constantly focus on the works that I'm about to play. We're about to do Bruckner's Eighth Symphony with my Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. <laughs> That's the opening of our season, a very unusual way of opening a season. Usually you try to open the season with something flashy and familiar, but we've all been through a very traumatic experience in the world, and rather than just simply play something famous that everybody knows, you know... Everybody knows that with the glorious team... Put everybody in a good mood with uh, energy and vitality. Beethoven is always good for that. What we're doing is something much more challenging. We're doing Bruckner's Eighth Symphony. I'm sure no other conductor in the world would dream of doing such a foolish thing. But it's a beautiful, deeply spiritual, uplifting, moving and out-of-body experience to listen to Bruckner in a great concert hall. So I'm taking a risk. It's an 87-minute piece of music, challenging in every way, so I know that by the end of it, like when you climb a very high mountain, the view is glorious.
1: Ben, how did music arrive in your life?
0: My father was deeply musical. He wasn't a professional, but he was a great musician, and he Coming from Germany, he knew music intimately. He could play the piano wonderfully. And he played with such enthusiasm and such ecstasy, with his shoulders raising and his body swaying. I was a little tyke and I said, I'll have what he's having. I wrote some compositions when I was about nine. And my mother, she put these compositions in in for an arts festival in the village where we lived in England. And the adjudicator came down from London and he held my compositions in the air above his very tall head and said, These compositions are so bad that I can't consider them for the competition, but I would recommend this young man be discouraged from ever composing again. <laughs> well, my mother had no idea what to do, but she put them in an envelope and sent them to Benjamin Britten. Well, four days later, Benjamin Britten called and said to my mother, no, no, don't worry, your son is fine. I mean, he's nine years old, what do you expect? So if you want to come with your family to Albra, to where he lived in beautiful in Suffolk by the sea, come and spend your summer holiday and I'll keep an eye on his development. And so for three years, the whole family went to Albra and I became very close to Benjamin Britten and to Imogen Holst, uh, who was my teacher, the daughter of Gustav Holst. So I, I fell into a whole world of opportunity as a result of my mother not taking no as the end of the story. She took it as just an invitation to another conversation.
1: You speak there of composing at a very early age, you're playing the cello, so how did a child from that origin end up as a conductor, arguably the one responsible for making the music happen, but you don't ever play right. a note?
0: Well, it happened, again, through a rather funny story. I was a very active cellist and chamber music player and teacher, and I'm a very expressive player. And I went for a job at a summer school where they were looking for a teacher for cello and chamber music. And I impressed the lady who was hiring sufficiently, so she hired me. And then we had tea. And after, at the tea, she said, incidentally, we're looking for a conductor for the orchestra. Do you know anybody who could do that? And I said, I'd love to do that. And she said, are you very experienced? I said, oh, very Well, I hadn't actually conducted a note at that point, but I knew that what I could do was to move and inspire young people to play music, to bring out all the intensity and the passion and the vision that the composer was putting in there, whether I was playing the cello or coaching chamber music or conducting. It's really essentially all the same thing.
1: You are well known for explaining the joys and accessibility of classical music, so... Why is it, Ben, that so many of us feel that we need classical music explaining to us? There's a writer and musician called Clemency Burton-Hill, and she once said that classical music is perceived as a creaky old museum of dead white European males by many. I mean, What is it that makes us think, or some of us think, that classical music belongs to other people, perhaps more educated and with more means to pay for it?
0: Well, Emma, it's a very complicated question, but on one level it's quite Simple. Take Beethoven. Beethoven is, for me, not a dead white European male. He's one of the greatest thinkers, one of the greatest artists of all time. And whether it's Dante or Dostoevsky or Shakespeare or George Eliot or James Baldwin, they're all teaching us something about life. So when Beethoven, let's say you're sitting sad and distraught and upset and sorry for yourself, Beethoven comes along and says, Try and stay gloomy while that is going on. You can't. What Beethoven was teaching us was that there's always a pathway to triumph however dark the suffering. And his own suffering was extreme. He was deaf. He was a deaf composer. And yet he was able to see through that darkness and suffering and lead to triumph. And so the whole early part of the piece and the ninth symphony the same, the darkness of the first movement, and the driving energy of the second movement and the beautiful seraphic slow movement, and then finally in the last movement at long last Freud <laughs> Tochter Wir betreten All human beings will be as brothers where thy soft wings do waft. So what Beethoven is pointing to something, to a possibility, to a world in which it is a possibility to think of human beings being together. That's a, a wonderful thing that these composers can do. And in my interpretation classes, which are online, I do for young musicians and uh, in, in explain music and teach them how to make it more expressive and everybody can watch it and learn about music and learn how deeply touching the, the music of Elgar or Mozart or Brahms or Schubert can be for anybody. And that's why with the Philharmonia recordings, I have a whole series of Mahler recordings uh, with the Philharmonia and Bruckner also, and I put a full-length CD, 80 minutes, explaining the music so that anyone can find out what to listen for while this incredible music is playing. It's my way of taking responsibility for helping people to have a more full human life.
1: If you think about how people perceive going to listen to music, to classical music, there is a certain stiffness that some people might think there is, that people are worried that they're listening the wrong way and that there's a formality to to the way that the public get it. I mean, even when I look at you and, and, when, and when you're conducting, you put on the suit, you stop being Ben and you become Benjamin, and there's a right. sense of occasion that some people who think, actually, that's not part of what I what I understand or I'm not sure I'm listening properly.
0: Well, if I can just distinguish two ways of thinking for a moment which is essential to my way of life which is you can either look through life through the prism of the downward spiral of people can't understand it it's a waste of time it's only for a few people it's not for me or you can look through the prism of possibility which is that how would it be if we looked at the world as if everybody is available to this experience, and then we speak to them as if we trust that they will be able to hear it and understand it. And yes, I put on a suit, but I go in front of the audience before the concert to explain the music. So I take a number of steps which break down that hierarchical or that separate cold world and make people feel connected, involved, and as though the music is being written for them and speaking for them. And if you work hard at it, as I do, and I never give up, I never lose hope, it turns out that a lot of people want to be moved, and they want those shining eyes, and that's the test. Human connection always shows up in the eyes. And if the eyes aren't shining, I get to ask this question, who am I being? that the player's eyes are not shining or that my children's eyes are not shining or that one's customers or one's lover is not having shining eyes. So it's all about transformation and about reaching out to people and including them in the experience.
1: What role, Ben, do you think the internet has now played in making more people's eyes shine?
0: I see it as an overwhelming opportunity because I can now sit in my office, which I've had to do for the last two years because of the pandemic, and listen to everybody play. I mean, I can listen, put on recordings that were made in the 30s by the great masters that my father heard when he was living in Germany. I just press a button and there they are. I mean, this is a miraculous time. And I think it has an overwhelmingly powerful and positive effect on the way people are being brought up and a lot of people say classical music is dying. I say, you ain't seen nothing yet. I have a series of classes which I do, just interpretation classes which I do with my students and we put them on YouTube and as many as 700,000 people have been watching just a class between me and a cellist or a violinist or a singer. It's just unbelievable. So I'm in a very enthusiastic state of mind about it. Now, mind you, I went last night to my first live orchestral concert and I burst into tears. I mean, I had tears streamed because the sound, it's like having eaten food out of a can for two years. Suddenly you eat fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and it's like, <gasps> you can't believe the the freedom and the, and the joy and the intensity of the experience is just... So you can't replace the live performance, but we do very well through the internet and through the other mechanical means that we have of keeping in touch with a vast amount of great music.
1: Your passion has led to some rather fabulous breakthroughs inspiring much wider and younger audiences, hasn't it? There's one project in particular in London a few years ago which which is just gorgeous.
0: There was a school that was designated as a failing school. Imagine the government says this is a failing school and the child is asked, where do you go to school? And he says, I go to a failing school. Well, <laughs> that's not a good beginning of the day. Uh, so I went there with the Philharmonia Orchestra. There were 1,500 children in the in the room and vast majority of them had never seen an orchestra, heard an orchestra. And I did something with them which was very... Uh, extraordinary, really, was there's a passage in the Beethoven Fifth Symphony in the slow movement in which there are seven individual voices simultaneously. And what I did was I played one voice, just one cello going... And then I played the second voice on top of it and the third voice and the fourth voice and each time I turned around and asked the kids how many people heard that. When we got to seven... Voices all playing simultaneously. I said, How many heard seven voices? And I swear, out of the 1,500, there must have been 900 kids who put up their hand. And so, when I had the opportunity a few weeks later to meet the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, I said, You shouldn't call a school a failing school that has 900 children that can hear seven voices. And he smiled and said, We should stop doing that. And they did.
1: You work extensively in, with leaders and groups and companies and organisations. How did the worlds of music and leadership fuse?
0: Well, there's a very powerful image or metaphor, if you like, that I bring to the world of uh, corporate leadership or just leadership in general. The conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. He's the only musician who doesn't make a sound. But he has great power. But his power comes from his ability to make other people powerful. That's the key. The conductor's power, his job, if you like, is to awaken possibility in other people. And the way you know whether it's working is the eyes are shining. So it's a very simple model, very different from the model that most people are focused on. Most people are focused on Wealth and fame and power. It's essentially a competitive world. And the world that I'm talking about, the world in which music lives, is not about those things, it's about possibility. And my only concern is, as I've said, the shining eyes of the people. Because when the eyes are shining, then people are in touch with the most important elements that human beings have to live with, which is community and sharing and uh, inclusiveness and those things that we know about and maybe we think about, well, I'll deal with that on Sunday when I go to church. But I say that every time you open your mouth, you have a choice between being in that world of measurement and the competitive world or the measurement world in which we live most of the time and the beauty of music, of great music, is that it takes us willy-nilly into that world of possibility where we are naturally connected, where our voices sound together. That is what really we all want.
1: And you talk about being a leader open to suggestion. Tell us about the the white sheet of paper that you leave on your players' music stand.
0: The problem with the conductor orchestra model, and it's true of leaders everywhere, is that it's hierarchical. So the conductors are all on a podium, they're male, they're right-thinking, you can't argue with the conductor. And so I've introduced a new model whereby the players all have a white sheet of paper on their stand at every rehearsal. And they're free, and this is true of the youth orchestra kids too, and they're as young as 12. And I invite them on that white sheet of paper to say anything that will further the action, that will bring us along. And, and they're very brave, and they have to sign it, so I know who they are. And it opens a conversation between the conductor and the players which is very enlivening for all of us. And sometimes when they write something very beautiful or insightful or useful, I share it with the group. If there's something that we might have a disagreement about, I might call the person up or email them or have a discussion. So it flattens the hierarchy so that we're all on the eye level. Remember, my job is to make them effective and powerful. That's my job. And that's true of of parents and it's true of CEOs. It's true of teachers, so we all have that same path, and it's a sacred path to be a teacher, is to enable the people who are entrusted to us to be the most effective and the most happy and the most flourishing that they possibly can be.
1: We moved into a time where you had to take things very seriously in the last 16 or 17 months, and... That ability to to look for possibilities was seriously and very practically curtailed, sadly, for so many musicians who were basically unable to work during the time of lockdown. How did your relationship with music change during lockdown, if at all?
0: Every group that I'm involved with had a different answer. The, The professional orchestra that I conducted, the Boston Philharmonic, closed down. And didn't make a sound what I did do is I I went around and raised a lot of money so that we could pay them anyway because we clap and applaud and love them when they play but when the many of them got into serious financial difficulties the community came around and supported them in a very very generous and magnificent way and so in some cases was life-saving With the youth orchestra, it was a very interesting thing because on Zoom, you can't make music. There's no way you try. Many people have tried various strategies, but I recognized very quickly there was no way. And so I came up actually with an idea that I'm rather proud of, which is that I said to them, we can't play music, but we can approach music as if you were the conductor. The conductor is silent. And so I turned all of them into conductors. Well, out of the 100 people in the orchestra, 70 signed up. And about 50 of them took the journey very seriously on a weekly basis. We met every week. We studied scores. We learned about instruments. We learned about music. We learned about leadership. And we came out with 25 films and articles that I wrote with them together that are going to be be on my website for posterity. So that's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And that was done during COVID. So possibility is something that happens only when you're open to the less than obvious. And I, I love to tell the story, which actually inspired me in this, of my father when he was interned during the war as a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. He was on the Isle of Man with 2,000 frightened and depressed people who'd lost their homeland and, in his case, eight members of his family and God knows what all. And he looked around in that place because everybody was very depressed and Hitler was in, in Paris and likely to invade at any moment. He looked around and said, there are a lot of intelligent people here. We should have a university. And so they started a university in that camp with 46 classes a week and no books, no blackboard, no paper, no nothing, just people talking to each other. Now that is possibility, creating something where nothing was there. And I look back at this year as one of the most creative and challenging and exciting periods of my life, which is actually surprising.
1: Ben, there's a delightful moment on one of your videos online, where at the end of a very vigorous and passionate coaching session of two young players, I think it's like you're celebrating your eighty second birthday. Only once the lesson has finished and you've stopped almost diving across the room. Do you realise that you were under strict instructions to lean on a stick for support?
0: <laughs> well, I'd just come out of hospital and I had a rather serious injury, which was both my legs were injured, so I couldn't walk at all. And when I was in hospital, I literally had to learn to, to move again from the most primitive stage. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. So then finally they sent me home with a wheelchair and a walker and a walking stick. And amazingly enough, during that coaching session, I completely forgot that I was an invalid. And I literally forgot and I started stamping my feet and waving my arms with such energy. And then suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, I'm an an invalid, so I grabbed my walking stick.
1: What are you looking forward to the most? to doing next and to embarking upon next?
0: The website is a, is a big focus. We have seven concerts in Symphony Hall next year, the, one of the greatest concert halls in the world with two orchestras. That's an enormous amount of repertoire, enormous amount of people to share great music with. And I have a very simple idea, which is that I'm still full of joy and passion and life I feel as fresh in my relationship to music as I ever did, and I want to share it with as many people as possible. One of the things that music can do is to express different emotions at the same time, so it can express sadness, sorrow, love, hope, all the emotions of joy and uplift. And I think of the the famous. Uh, variation from the Enigma variations of Elgar, the Nimrod variation. He loved this man he was describing. He was his best friend and somebody he respected with enormous, almost reverence. And at the same time, they both loved Beethoven. And so it is full of joy, but it's also sadness because of the loss of the friendship. And with my youth orchestra, every time we go on tour, at the end of the year, the last thing we do is we play this smiling through tears, saying farewell to each other, losing something of value and at the same time cherishing hope and beauty and love in our hearts forever.
1: You've been listening to The Big Interview with me, Emma Nelson, in conversation with Benjamin Zander. And do check out Benjamin's recordings of these Mahler symphonies with the Philharmonia. Every recording comes with a free CD containing an explanation. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. Don't forget to subscribe to this and any of our other programmes on Monocle 24. Well, until next time, all that's left to say is goodbye and thank you very much for listening. And I leave you in the hands of Ben and his piano and the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, who together will give us a brief demonstration as to why classical music really is for everybody. This is Nimrod from Elgar's Enigma Variations.